Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Dr. Samuel Moxon, and I'm delighted to return as the host of the Dementia Podcast. Our guest this week is someone whose work I've followed for many years, New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Neil Barnard. Dr. Barnard has led numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, body weight, and chronic pain, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes funded by the National Institutes of Health that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients. Dr. Barnard has authored more than 100 scientific publications and 20 books for medical and lay readers, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians, a textbook made available to U.S. medical students. As president of the Physicians Committee, Dr. Barnard leads programs advocating for preventative medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. His research has contributed to the acceptance of plant-based diets in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. In 2015, he was named a Fellow of the American College of Cardiology. In 2016, he founded the Barnard Medical Center in Washington, D.C., as a model for making nutrition a routine as part of all medical care. Working with the Medical Society of the District of Columbia and the American Medical Association, Dr. Barnard has authored key resolutions, now part of AMA policy, calling for a new focus on prevention and nutrition in federal policies and in medical practice. In 2018, he received the Medical Society of District Columbia's Distinguished Service Award, and he's hosted four PBS television programs on nutrition and health. Originally from Fargo, North Dakota, Dr. Barnard received his medical degree at the George Washington University School of Medicine and completed his residency at the same institution. He practiced at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York before returning to Washington to found the Physicians Committee. We had a fascinating discussion about the role of lifestyle in dementia. So without further ado, let's get to it and we hope you enjoy this episode. So Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast and thank you for joining us today. How are you feeling? Terrific. Great to be with you today. That's what we like to hear. We like to hear that everyone's doing well. Uh, so obviously, I've been a, a follower of your work for some time, and I'm particularly interested in, in the work you focus on with relation to diet, lifestyle, and health. And I'd like to start with Alzheimer's disease. And the, the simple question of, can we do something to help prevent such a debilitating disease? And if so, what can we do with our lifestyle? The short answer is that there is a tremendous amount that we can do. And that, that's so important because up until recently, um, and really still today in the minds of many people, uh, dementia is simply a function of old age and genetics. If you've got the genes, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and uh, old age brings with it dementia is just part of the years going by. Yeah. That is pretty clearly not the case. And there are things that research has brought us that are surprisingly simple and that we can implement tomorrow morning. Okay, so that's... Let's touch on that last point there. You say something we can implement tomorrow morning. It's quite a, a powerful message because it means it gives you this, this, this idea that there is something you can do and you can do it right away. So what are the specifics of that? Is it changing diet? And if so, what should we be looking to eat more of and less of? Yes, uh, diet is the cornerstone. And I give the credit really to researchers in Chicago, the Chicago Health and Aging Project. They got started back in 1993 and it was an observational study where they rounded up thousands of people, they looked at dietary patterns and they looked at who succumbed to dementia. Okay. And they even factored in who had 
genetic risk, who didn't. And uh, when you put this study together with a number of other studies, the pattern is really very clear. First of all, we indict bad fat. And when I say bad fat, I mean saturated fat. Okay. Um, that's the fat that's solid at room temperature. Um, cheese, dairy products are the biggest source, meat is the big source. So uh, if you have a diet that doesn't have any dairy or meat in it, you are miles ahead. Um, the risk of Alzheimer's is probably cut to less than half, probably maybe less, oh, wow. than, less than a third what it would have been. Um, but it's not just avoiding the bad stuff, it's also bringing in good things. Um, and generally speaking, a dietary pattern based on vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and I'm gonna say legumes, but that really means beans and lentils. That is a good basic pattern. And let me throw in um, modest amounts of nuts and seeds, yeah. um, 25 grams, 30 grams, nuts and seeds, because they have vitamin E and vitamin E, people who have vitamin E, not from pills, but from, sub, uh, but, but from foods. Um, and that's an important distinction in the research studies. Uh, they cut their risk of Alzheimer's about 50%. Wow. So just by simply eating the right things, you can you can hugely reduce the risk, and that's independent of genetic risk factors like, say, ApoE4, for example. Yes, uh, and that is so critically important because people have rightly been concerned about this genetic trait. It's a, it's a single genetic trait, and it's the epsilon four allele on the ApoE. And if you got it from both parents, you're at ten to fifteen times the risk. So yeah. people have been very concerned. And when they get the bad findings on their test results, they get very nervous about it, rightly so. Uh, but let me say a word. Researchers have looked at individuals who specifically had the ApoE epsilon-4 allele. And if they were avoiding bad fats, their risk of developing Alzheimer's was cut by oh, a good 80% compared to people with similar genetics. Yeah. But who are tucking into the cheese omelets and the, <laughs> you know the uh, the animal fat and that kind of thing? Yeah. And the, the problem, of course, is that in our cultures, in here in North America, certainly throughout Europe, uh, up and down Britain, um, these high saturated fat foods are are front and center, um, and have been. But luckily, there has been a huge movement for many years now to remember humble beans, yeah, <laughs> vegetables. And you can make some absolutely delicious recipes with, with those ingredients. I can, I can attest to that. Um, so it's interesting as well. So we're talking about, you know, reducing risk with things like saturated fat. So and you talked about, I saw you um, saw in, in a TED talk, which is based on your book, um, Power Foods for the Brain. You talked about your mother would make bacon and then use the bacon grease for the eggs the next day. And the fact that it's solidified at room temperature would mean it's high in saturated fat. So does that mean we're also getting you know, essentially kidded or lied to about things like coconut oil, which we're told is healthy because that's solid at room temperature as well? Coconut oil and palm oil have become major commercial products in recent years. And they're along with the commercial push comes a sort of health claim push, which is that it's natural. Um, but it is about as bad as butter. So wow. I, would, I would steer clear. And, and the, the, the alarm bells went off with cardiovascular disease. When in a randomized trial, you could feed people uh, a healthy diet that doesn't have a lot of fat in it, check their cholesterol levels. You could feed them butter, their cholesterol levels would rise. If you feed them coconut oil or palm oil, their cholesterol levels rise too. Okay. Maybe not as bad as butter, but they go up. And so I would encourage people in the same way as you avoid animal products because they're rich in bad fats, I would avoid the coconut oil and palm oil as well. And it's interesting you're talking about this because 
especially in recent years, we have grown to learn more that there are connections between the digestive system and the, and the brain. You know, studies showing that, for example, the bacteria in the gut are altered in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, studies linking high blood pressure, uh, hypertension, uh, insulin resistance, things that you might not necessarily think of the brain when you think of that, but they all link. So when you're talking about you know, reducing saturated fats and things like trans fats and, and the positive impact that can have on the brain, are we talking about a direct effect or is it a mixture of indirect effects and direct effects with it affecting other parts of the body as well? I think we should be clear about what we know and what we believe. Um, okay. What we know is that certain dietary patterns are clearly linked to better cognition as the years go by. Um, and what we believe is that a big part of the drive is just basically cholesterol. Uh, in the same way as you eat bad fat, your cholesterol level rises, that hurts your heart, that hurts uh, other parts of your body, it hurts wherever you have blood flow. Um, it also hurts the brain. And researchers here in the United States did a troubling study of more than 10,000 people. And they found that those who had high cholesterol levels had substantially higher risk of Alzheimer's later in life, but the cholesterol levels they drew to, to, to use that prediction were drawn at about age 40. Oh, wow. In other words, you're eating bad foods, you're in the prime of life, you, you think, well, I'll worry about that when I'm 80. Yeah. Apparently the seeds are sown early in life, the, the arterial damage, including the arteries leading to the gray matter um, are, are damaged quite early. Um, but, but the cholesterol, the, the cholesterol uh, issue is, is, is part of it, um, but there may well be other contributors as well. Uh, blood sugar may play a role. People who have diabetes, okay. people who have diabetes probably double their risk of okay. uh, developing Alzheimer's. And our work has shown conclusively that the same diet I just described, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, healthy foods, low fat foods, yeah. um, is by far the best diet for a person who's got uh, a desire to reduce the risk of, of uh, diabetes. Yeah, and it's interesting that you just talked about you know, studies that were done on people in the 40s, because we obviously know now that this is a disease that takes many decades to manifest. And so it's a series of changes and a series of problems. And so I guess the earlier the start that you, the earlier that you start, the better. And it's also when you talk about cholesterol, if you think about the fact that you know, cholesterol clogs arteries and stops blood flow, or the brain is, is one of the most blood hungry organs it needs this massive blood supply and so forth is it possible that by eating these high amounts of saturated fats and trans fats we're actually blocking that blood supply to the brain and that is causing some of the inflammation and some of the damage that's linked to diseases like alzheimer's disease yes it, the short answer is yes and it is important to remember that you have more than one kind of blood vessel in the body you have yeah. uh, very large blood vessels the carotids those are the main lines going up to the brain but then they branch off into very tiny blood vessels where a very modest narrowing can lead to a dramatic reduction in blood flow to certain regions of the brain. The brain tries to compensate by making collateral uh, uh, blood flow that where you're stealing a little bit of blood flow from next door and you can cope with that for a while, but eventually um, the arterial narrowings become really quite regional and that's something you just don't want to have happen. But um, in the 1970s, 1980s, we thought that that was a one-way street as well. And so that if you had narrowed arteries, that was part of being old, there's nothing you could do. And then along came Dr. Dean Ornish, yeah. who showed that people with quite significant atherosclerotic plaques narrowing their arteries 
could, through simple lifestyle changes, without the use of even, without even cholesterol-lowering medication at that time, um, could cause those arteries to reopen enough that the increase in blood flow was very significant. Um, the, the chest pain would go away. Erectile dysfunction, which is blood flow, uh, blood flow condition, uh, would go away. All these things would go away within a matter of just weeks. And so we now believe that all of these things are two-way streets. So you've eaten badly. You're now later in life. You're thinking, what can I do? The answer is, let's plan your breakfast tomorrow so that we can get the bad fat out of your diet, open those arteries up, get your blood sugar under better control with a healthy plant-based diet. And you're not going to become a teenager again, but you're going to become a whole lot more like a teenager than you are now. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a change that I, I made in, in recent months. And I can attest to the fact the difference you feel is, is remarkable. You know, suddenly you have these high energy levels, you're finishing lunch and you're not feeling like you need to go and have a nap. You know, you, you sort of, you wake up early, you feel better. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And I guess there's, there'll be some people listening who perhaps think, oh, it's too late for me. I'm, I'm older now, or, you know, I'm too far gone. Is it ever too late to try and make these changes? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, 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 the older you get, the more important it is to do this. But frankly, no, it is, it is never too early. It is never too late. Um, we have been working with people who've had um, quite advanced diabetes, they've had chronic weight problems, and uh, even to the point of having significant complications. I'm talking about diabetic neuropathy, for example, where the nerves are being attacked. And I have to tell you, these people very often feel really quite hopeless and depressed. The medications they're on, fairly heavy duty pharmaceuticals, not really touching their symptoms. But when we begin the diet changes, we're doing something that the medications can't do, which is we're going to the basic fundamental pathology of it, which usually has to do with the insulin resistance in the cell or the cholesterol level um, in the, in the uh, inner lining of the arteries. And if you're attacking that directly by changing the fuel that's going into the body, the body has a capacity to heal that imperfect as it is, is functioning as long as you're alive. In the same way as you cut your skin, it will heal if you're 90. Uh, you break a bone, you can heal. Maybe not as well as when you were four or five, but you'll heal. Um, the arteries can heal. Uh, we should be putting this to work regardless of age. Yeah, and, and um, you, you talk about insulin resistance, and that's obviously something that's also linked to Alzheimer's disease is insulin resistance in, in neurons as well. You know. The, the similar thing that you see in type two diabetes. So is it as simple as is, is fat then the problem for diabetes and not you know carbohydrates as perhaps people a lot of people still still think? Yes, what you said is is the single most important breakthrough in, in diabetes in the past twenty years, which is is well known in the research community but has not filtered through sufficiently into into a lay understanding. And that's this that diabetes does not come from eating bread or eating sugar or eating a potato or starch in general. Diabetes starts as a condition called insulin resistance where your cells aren't responding to insulin anymore. Insulin's job, the insulin made in your body, its job is to open up the cell membranes to let the sugar into the cell. And if your diet is fatty, chicken, fish, beef, uh, chips <laughs> straight out of the fryer. You know, the, the grease builds up inside the cells. When the cells get filled with little microscopic particles of, of fat, 
they no longer respond to insulin signal anymore. Insulin stops working, you are insulin resistant, your blood sugar goes up, your doctor di uh, diagnoses you with diabetes. If you follow the diet I described earlier, there's not much fat in the diet of any kind uh, because you're not eating animal products at all, you're keeping oils low. The cells start to eliminate that accumulated fat. And we have documented this with uh, magnetic resonance spectroscopy. It's a, it's a very expensive technical test, but you get in, you put the patient into this large magnet and you're, you're looking at their liver cells and their muscle cells, and you can just see the fat is going away because they're not eating it anymore. And then their blood sugars start to come down because the sugar is now able to get into the cells and out of the blood. And as time goes on, they're the primary physicians of these patients who we work with are astounded. They say, how, how, did, you, how did your diabetes go away? It's because the sugar is now going into their cells where it has supposed to been, have been going all along. So it's almost like if you're trying to put fuel in the car and there's something, there's something in the way of the, you know, you can't actually get the fuel canister into the car and then expecting that car to run. If you can just remove the blockage, you can then get the fuel into your car and your car can go. And that's what the fat's doing, is it? That, that's, that's a terrific analogy. And up until, oh, two decades ago or so, we didn't really have the technology to understand this process, but we have it now. And we published a major article in JAMA Network Open last year, six or eight months ago, where we brought in a very large group of people. We put them on this diet. It's a vegan diet. There's no animal products, but we also keep oily foods really low. And when you do that, the fat just comes out of the cells and your blood sugar control is returned to a much more normal status. And the old adage that I learned in medical school, which is that diabetes is a one-way street, once you have it, you'll always have it, has been resoundingly disproved that people who have had diabetes for quite for, for years uh, can improve quite dramatically. They can reduce their medicines, sometimes get off them, sometimes the, sometimes wow. the disease is, is just gone. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating as well, the idea that you can, because uh, I say my father has diabetes and, and he, he's, the, the doctor has him on a low carb diet and I keep, I keep telling him, you know, but he's a butcher, so it's going to be difficult for me to get the, the meat off his plate, but I, I, am, I am trying. So, um, well, 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 let, me, let me just say a word because your father is not alone. There are so many people who have grown up in good, honest business environments, doing things that they thought were good for health. Yeah. And they feel like they're providing something that people like that helps them, that nourishes them. And then we come to, to develop magnetic resonance spectroscopy where we can look into your body and then we suddenly see what the products are doing to you. Um, yeah. What he sells will not affect his health. What he eats will affect his health. So if he um, quietly adopts a vegan diet and, <laughs> and, and gets the grease out of his, his diet um, and follows it carefully on a daily basis, the chances of his improving are very close to 100%. And um, his, his life and worldview will be transformed as, as has been the case for so many people. And it makes you wonder if, if the fat cells are doing this to, to liver cells. And I'm guessing we're talking about mostly about type two diabetes, but I know it can reduce insulin resistance in, in type one as well. Uh, but it makes you wonder that if, if it's doing this to liver cells, what's it doing to brain cells that we don't know about yet? And, you know, the question I want to ask next is, does this mean if you switch this diet, does it mean no Alzheimer's disease or does it just mean significantly reduced risk? And there are perhaps other factors as well. Um, 
I think it's too much to say that there will not be any Alzheimer's disease anymore. I, I really don't think that's the case. And I also think that although you do see improvements in cognition in cases where a person has made changes sort of early in the course of dementia, of a dementia I think that, 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 well, there is a time when the brain has been damaged and that is not going to come back. Um, yeah. So, so um, intervene early, intervene um, robustly, and, and be immoderate. Uh, there are lots of people who think, I'll just make a little change here or there. That's like switching from full tar cigarettes to low tar cigarettes. It's, yeah. it's, it, for, I, I, I wish that I had been able to devise a better human body that, was, that, that could tolerate more insults than our body can. <laughs> we, we really don't do very well when we try to eat like a carnivore. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, that's the key thing as well. Usually by the time somebody gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, a lot of the damage has been done. And so the research is focused on prevention. And so this, this I guess, is a powerful tool for that prevention because if we can prevent it before it happens, then, then we don't have the, the sort of the burden on the health services to try and treat people who, at the moment, by the point they are diagnosed, are relatively difficult to treat. You know, there's not a lot you can really do for those people. Yes, that said, um, there have been a number of studies that have looked at individuals who are having early signs of dementia, um, mild cognitive impairment, if you will. Yeah. You're, you're still yourself, but you're having mental lapses. All uh, Names are dropping out, words are dropping out. Your personality is the same, you're probably still driving, but you know that your memory is poor. Uh, if you look in these people's brains, you often see that the hippocampus, which is the seat of memory, does not look the same. It's it's visibly shrunken. So researchers have brought in such people, worked on um, a range of diet, uh, of lifestyle changes, healthier diet, plus physical activity. There is something about lacing up your sneakers and going out for a brisk walk uh, that seems to oxygenate the brain. Yeah. And at the University of Illinois, a large study, 120 people, showed that with a 40 minute brisk walk three times a week, scans of the hippocampus show a reversal of that reduction in size. It starts to, 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 to be restored a bit and standardized memory tests improve as well. Okay. So we should be doing all these things. We should be doing a healthy diet. We should definitely be supplementing with vitamin B12, which you need for a healthy brain. And we should also be uh, exercising to the extent we are able to. Yeah, and that's that's quite remarkable. The idea of the, the hippocampal shrinking reversing, because obviously the hippocampus shrinking is a big part of Alzheimer's disease. You know, it's where the disease starts is in the hippocampus. You know, it's almost like the core of your being is the hippocampus. So that's that's amazing to hear. So, the uh, as you sort of answered this question, then, but um, just just for those people who are listening who are thinking, well, I could give this a go, but I can't give up everything. Is it essential to go full in on this diet? And if so, you know, where's, where's a good starting point? Is there an easy way to, to transition into something like this? Because some people might want to try and keep different things if they can. Can I learn to swim without actually getting into the pool? Um, <laughs> is the way I think of it. Um, it here, my analogy is this. We bring in hundreds and hundreds of people here into our center. We're here in Washington, D.C. And we see people in research studies. And we also see people clinically who, are, who have health issues. And um, we do want them to really become robustly healthy. So we, we implement the healthiest possible diet, but everybody's nervous. They're very much like a 
going to the swimming pool in June. You think, I'm sure the water's cold. I don't know if I dare jump in. Everyone's nervous. So we break break the change into two steps. And I have to say, I have never seen anyone unable to do this. It's, it's, it works for us virtually every time. Okay. You take, you break the next month into two blocks. The first block is a week. The next block is three weeks. Block one, the patient or interested individual doesn't make any diet change at all. But what they do do is they take a piece of paper. And during this week, their job is to fill in breakfast and lunches and dinners ideas of things that they would eat if they were not eating animal products and, and things that they would like and it, or things they might like. And now they've got seven days to test them out. So, okay, uh, I'll have porridge. That's okay. But I always put cream on my porridge. Would it taste okay with cinnamon instead? Hmm. You got, you got a week. <laughs> Let's try it out. Uh, for lunch, um, I have this stew, but I hear there's a, a vegetable stew that they serve at the, the, the cafe nearby. I've never tried it. You got a week. Try it. There's an Italian place nearby. I always have meat sauce on my spaghetti. Would the tomato sauce be just as good? You've got seven days. Make your list. At the end of a week, the patient comes back. They've always got a robust list of, of foods they, that will work for them. Um, and these may include fast foods. You went to Subway and they've got, you know, a, a vegan sandwich, whatever it is. Yeah. Step two is to take three weeks. And now during this three-week period, you're going to avoid animal products completely. But that is very approachable now because it's only three weeks. And secondly, you already made your list of what you know works for you. And you've probably already stocked up. And so we meet with the individual and their reluctant spouse, and they will go uh, totally vegan together. But it's now kind of easy and they're excited because, you know, they, they want to do better. At the end of three weeks, two things have happened. One is they are physically healthier. They're losing weight. Their cholesterol is coming down. If they have diabetes, their blood sugar is better. But their tastes are changing and they find foods they like. And at that point, it's very easy. It's just like you jumped in the pool. You've been in there a couple of minutes. The water is actually really nice. And I'm not sure I want to get out now. Um, yeah. th- that's what they feel. Yeah. And it, it does, it, it generally does change because um, a, a good one for me was nutritional yeast, which I thought was disgusting the first time I tried it. And now I think it's one of the most delicious things to put onto something. So your taste just does change. So are there any downsides to trying this then? Or is it all upsides? Uh, you are going to have to buy new clothes. Um, you know, for, um, you are going to become the answer person for all your friends because they're all going to want to know how is it that you lost this weight? And no, no, there, there, there are no downsides. I, I will say that there are awkwardnesses, um, because it's a new world and, and you'll find sometimes that, um, a person decided they could eat, you know, like 600 grams of beans and they got a little gas because they overdid it. Uh, but no, no, the, Quite the contrary, what people discover is the applications of it are far beyond helping the brain. We have been doing some studies recently on the last thing that you would ever think of as having anything to do with diet. It's not diabetes and weight and cholesterol and blood pressure and all the usual things that get better. What we've been looking at is is menopausal symptoms. Okay. Uh, So many women are concerned about this because they have hot flashes and they're miserable uh, during the day and at night, their sleep is interrupted a half a dozen times. Um, And the doctor says uh, the treatment is hormones and this has been linked to dementia in some people as well. Um, And these hormones can increase your risk of cancer and they might be harmful to the brain. 
and the person says, I, you're giving me no choice here. I, what do I do? Uh, and we have been using a specific dietary intervention for that, finding that hot flashes were reduced by about 80%. Um, okay. and, and about six in 10 women become totally free of all moderate to severe hot flashes within about 12 weeks time. Wow, so it really is a powerful tool then. And because uh, the other things that, that tend to be linked to things like dementia, that I know this can help is migraines as well. Um, it's a problem that and my partner suffers with and since changing this, drastic improvements. So is that, is that another, another big thing to look at? I think things like migraines and how we can affect that with a plant-based diet. Yes, um, and I, I should hasten to say that the way we do the diet for menopause has certain specific ways. It, it's a little bit different than we'll do it for diabetes. Okay. We, it, um, and the way we do it for migraine is a little bit different too, but, but they're both easy and I can, I can describe them. With, with menopause, it's no animal products, we keep oils scrupulously low, and we add about a half a cup of cooked soybeans per day. And that okay. three-step combination is what seems to work, and I can describe why that's a good thing if you like. But with regard to migraine, um, we do a vegan diet and we do that because there are dietary triggers for migraine of which dairy products seem to be at the top of the list. And it's, it's, yeah. it seems to be the dairy protein. But there are some people where their um, migraines are triggered by unusual things, um, citric acid, for example, or um, citrus fruits or nuts or something else. So we have a specific way of trying to um, go to a very elemental diet, very simple diet that eliminates common triggers. And then once they're doing well, we bring in those triggers one at a time to see if it will trigger a migraine. And if so, then we've got a culprit. Just out of interest, and if, if you're able to say, the, the, the menopause research and how you include soy, is that to do with the ability soy has to regulate uh, estrogen activity? Because I know that's linked to reduced breast cancer as well, the way it binds to uh, the beta in, uh, estrogen receptor, and that can have a, uh, an impact. The soy story is one where we, we, we don't fully understand it, um, okay. but soy isoflavones, um, there are uh, genistein is one, dazine is, is the other big one, um, do attach to estrogen receptors. And this made people very nervous for some decades. Yeah, there was, there was the whole soy can, there was a big campaign about how soy is suddenly the devil because of this. Right, exactly. And the concern was it's got to increase your risk of breast cancer. Um, however, the results turned out to be just the opposite, that soy was quite predictably reducing breast cancer risk. And women who consumed the most soy, and when I say soy, I mean uh, soy milk, edamame, tofu, tempeh, miso, these kinds of things, or, you know, or just regular mature soybeans. The women who consumed the most had 30% um, or more reduction in breast cancer risk. And women previously diagnosed with breast cancer, if they would consume a lot of soy, um, contrary to what people imagined, uh, people thought, oh, that might, that might drive your cancer. It might cause your cancer to recur. Exactly the opposite occurred, that you saw about a 25 or 30% reduction in cancer recurrence. So soy looks like a cancer preventer and it's, it's very helpful. And so the answer of course has come in um, more recently, which is, you have two kinds of estrogen receptors, alpha yeah. receptors and beta receptors. It's like the gas and the brake, and the soy attaches to the brake very decisively to the beta receptor. Okay. Um, 
with regard to hot flashes, the secrets seems to be this, that soy products attached to the beta receptor, that's all great. This, this might have a, some kind of effect against hot flashes. We don't fully understand how they're working. And frankly, we don't fully understand what causes hot flashes in the first place, but we just know that this works. However, we do, soy products work kind of modestly until you also get the animal products out of the diet and keep okay. oils really low. When you do that, something miraculous happens. Your gut bacteria start to change. And within about two or three weeks, you've got healthier gut bacteria, some of which appear to convert the isoflavones into a particularly healthful form that has the name equal, E-Q-U-O-L, equal or equal. Um, and what we believe is happening is that when a person does my magical three-step program, uh, vegan, low fat, and soy, they eat the soy, the soy goes into their gut, the gut bacteria are now healthy, they convert the daisine into equal, the equal goes into the blood, it lasts a longer time, and the person suddenly says, I slept through the whole night last night, <laughs> what is that about? Um, and their lives are transformed uh, by, by this. That's really fascinating. And sleep, you know, being a big one for, for Alzheimer's risk as well, getting a good night's sleep, because that's when you can sort of switch off some of those processes that might be driving the disease. Well, in this, in this case, the sleep I'm referring to is, is for the menopausal women who have been um, troubled by hot flashes, uh, yeah. sometimes coming every hour, every two hours, something like that. And, um, and we've, we also have looked at a variety of other physical symptoms and even sexual symptoms. And for reasons I cannot explain, women report improvements in all of those domains. Wow. Um, so don't get me wrong. Menopause is not a disease. Menopause is part of life. It is entirely normal for the ovaries to say, we are finished. Um, yeah. and, and I'm now 52. I don't need a toddler on my kitchen floor. That is totally normal and good. What is not normal is all of these difficult symptoms that come along with it. Um, yeah. And so that's what we have been very happy to, to find. Uh, in, in case people are, are interested in learning more about that. Uh, we just published in the journal Menopause a, uh, the, the, these findings and we have a lot more research coming right behind it. And I'm sure we can, we can link that study in the show notes as well for anybody who's interested. Uh, so, so coming back to the very first point we touched on, which was um, Alzheimer's disease and how uh, high amounts of animal fat and saturate, you know, saturated fat, trans fats from things like say donuts could be uh, massively increasing the risk. Does that then is that the core explanation behind why, if you look at the epidemiology, it seems to be largely a westernized disease. You know, it does occur in other parts of the world, but it's really concentrated in North America, the United Kingdom, places like that. Yes. Uh, and it also seems to explain why even within certain locales, within the same city, you will see dramatic differences that go exactly along with diet. Um, and so when people um, avoid those food sources, they're going to do a lot better. There are other steps as well. I think it makes sense to be cautious about metal exposures, aluminum, copper, iron. We're still learning how these things affect the body, but it, it does make sense if your cast iron pan is your favorite pan and you're seeing it every day, you might need to, to switch. And uh, if you're taking an aluminum containing uh, antacid, you might want to switch to calcium carbonate. But these are, yeah. these are easy changes to make. Well, I mean, some of those metals are pr present in the plaques and the amyloid plaques that cause the disease. So uh, it, it is, you know, you don't want to have too much iron or too much uh, you know, things like zinc and that kind of thing. So um, 
if I can draw on a personal experience for a second, um, I made this switch to, to plant-based to manage my own chronic disease, which was a, an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, which was diagnosed. And I was told the same thing a lot of people are told, there's nothing we can do about this. You're going to have this for life, take these medicines, hope you don't have too many side effects and that kind of thing. And at the time, it was actually my partner, she was reading uh, Michael Greger's book um, and she was reading the chapter on inflammatory bowel diseases. And she said, well, why don't we try this, this diet? And it was Lent at the time, so it was a perfect chance to take that excuse to, to give something a go. We were already vegetarian, but reliant on dairy, reliant on processed foods. And so we tried this, and this was before I was receiving any treatment, and my symptoms pretty much went away. And I was very excited to tell my doctor this, and he said, oh, yeah, well, that will help your mental health, but we still, you know, we, we won't do anything else. There's no, there's no evidence for this. And I, having read through a lot of the journals, I thought, well, there is a lot of evidence for this. So why is it still difficult to get physicians or certain physicians on board with this kind of thinking? Is it just lack of exposure to the literature or is it something else? Having been doing this work for a long time, I, I got my MD degree back in 1980. And over all these decades, we have seen one innovation after another where dietary changes can reduce the risk of cancer, can, can alter cancer progression. Uh, in 1990, Dr. Dean Ornish showed that heart disease can be reversed um, he published his findings in the Journal of the American Medical Association and in Lancet. Um, so it's, it's not as if this was not peer-reviewed, extremely high-quality research. Our work on diabetes, being able to be dramatically improved by a plant-based diet, was published by the American Diabetes Association in its premier clinical journal and published at its, at its, uh, or presented at its convention. The work on Alzheimer's disease has been in the best, very best journals, and there has been abundant work on, on gastrointestinal diseases as well. And I have lamented over all these decades that what is published in medical journals, presented at conferences, well known among scientific experts, has often not filtered into the day-to-day -day physician's practice. And in fact, physicians, instead of saying those magic words, I'm not sure, I don't know, they start to tell you things like, there's no evidence, as if they have a clue, um, yeah. or it's all in your head, or you're getting a placebo effect, or some imaginary thing like that, that they simply should not say. Um, I have a suspicion that the reason for all this is if it were a new drug, that um, instead of a healthy diet change, drugs have pharmaceutical companies with huge promotional budgets behind them that pay for continuing medical education for doctors. And yeah. within 48 hours, every doctor in the country knows about it. If it's food, there's nobody really pushing that. And so doctors tend to ignore it. Plus, let's face it, doctors have their own dietary preferences and they kind of don't want to hear bad news about their favorite foods. Yeah, because it almost like they don't want to consider whether they should be making the same changes and that kind of thing. But, but, but I will say, I think there's an ethical issue here that doctors need to understand. We all learn these words, first do no harm. And we are yeah. doing harm to our patients if we don't present to them things that could change a disease process that is otherwise going to hurt them. And a doctor who says to you, you should be on a biological for the rest of your life. Um, as expensive as that may be, it's, and it's designed to modestly disable your immune system. And you're supposed to live with that. Or a person who has diabetes and is told, well, you're gonna be on, on insulin, or you're gonna be on sulfonylureas, you're gonna be on them for the rest of your life. Uh, Plant-based diets, it's too hard for you. you. You probably wouldn't wanna do it. Um, you are condemning the patient 
to all the side effects of those medications, to a treatment that often is not very effective, uh, often to a foreshortened lifespan, and that should simply not be the case. Yeah, and, and if there's, you know, if there are people listening who are struggling with these kind of illnesses and, and not able to get the information they need, then I would recommend they read your work, the works of Michael Clapper, the works of Michael Gregor, and specifically for inflammatory bowel diseases, um, Dr. Alan Desmond in the UK, and you'll find a lot of that really useful information. And um, I think- let, let me second that. Alan Desmond is uh, just so good at not only doing this, this work, but also conveying how to make it really simple. And yeah. when a person suddenly discovers I can feel better than I have felt in 20 years. Um, so my hat is off to Alan and, and his whole team, which they've just done a great job. Yeah, he's just um, released a cookbook. So he's now isn't in the same leagues as you, but it's producing, because I know you've produced a couple of cookbooks in the past as well. And it does, you know, not realizing how much the disease was making me tired and, and, and slow and sluggish. And now like, wow, is this what it feels to be healthy? It's, it's incredible. And I think opinion does seem to be changing. I mean, if we look at your, your TED talk about um, the effect of food on Alzheimer's, we're looking at nearly 8 million views. And I think either two or 3 million views on your other TED talk, people are starting to consume this, this information. And, as patients, do we have as much of a responsibility to, to try and design, try and drive this change as, as much as the scientists and the doctors to push for these approaches? We certainly have the opportunity to do it. We have a voice we didn't have before, and it's really social media. Um, it used to be that doctors were on television and so forth. Well, now um, people are listening and watching things on Facebook and on YouTube and on Instagram. And so anybody can, can reach their contacts and send things around. And I also want to um, note another phenomenon that's coming in a really interesting way. If there's anybody who needs energy, it's Novak Djokovic, um, or it's, <laughs> or, you know, in the, the fifth set at the Roland Garros tennis tournament, where he's the number one tennis player in the world. And, you know, he's uh, got to see if he can win this or, or it's Lewis Hamilton on, uh, you know, the 60th lap of a Grand Prix. Yeah. Um, and th those people have a whole lot more than 8 million views. And when both of them have adopted vegan diets and um, been pretty upfront about what it has done for them. And, and they, I think, have probably inspired more people to adopt a healthier diet than any doctor uh, ever has done. And they, they will never know how many um, lives they have saved. But when a person sees Lewis Hamilton, he talks very much about his, his healthy diet. And, uh, I'm sure all of his fans have probably the lowest cholesterol levels of anybody in the sports world. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, things are changing. You know, you can go to a restaurant now and you can find a wealth of options. And uh, this brings me to sort of my final science-based question with regards to things like dementia. So for things like, say, inflammatory bowel disease, another thing we have to avoid are processed foods and things like, you know, the additives in the processed food, particularly things like emulsifiers and preservatives. Is the same true for something like Alzheimer's disease? Or, or you know, can you have, say, a, a, a moving mountains burger or an impossible burger or that kind of thing, which has a lot of other things in there that aren't just necessarily whole foods? Within the past, I think the short answer is we need to read labels and we need to be cautious. Um, within the past three or four years, a new phenomenon has come up, and that's that, that burgers have been designed not as a healthy black bean burger that's really low in fat and requires maybe a little bit of taste adaptation. Um, the Impossible Burger was marketed not for people following a vegan diet. It was marketed to seduce a dyed-in-the-wool carnivore. Yeah. So, the, so the Impossible Burger was designed with coconut fat thrown in there and other things to make it 
have that same greasy mouthfeel that a beefy burger would have. So it's sort of methadone for a meat addict, if you will. It's yeah. there, to, it's there to, to lure you away from the animal-derived burger to a plant-based burger. And it, and it is healthier than the meat version. Don't get me wrong, it is. But it's still got some saturated fat in it. So it's a transition. To convince you, you don't need meat. And then once you think, okay, the impossible is all right, you want to go simpler and simpler and simpler. And eventually you discover that your tastes just sort of want to go that way anyway. We start to discover that fruits and vegetables are sort of these jewels of nature um, and whole grains and beans. You start to discover the, the more subtle flavors that they, they actually have. There are seductive foods all around us but you find yourself less and less interested in them. But the, the color of a bowl of, of, you know, berries, different berries or a big salad becomes really appealing. You, know, you want to get as much color on your plate as possible. And, and just the different flavors, because you, you do really adapt to those fresher flavors and less reliant on things like salt and fat. Um, so if you could give then the listeners one take home message from this, what would that take home message be? It's think short term. Because if you th don't worry about what you're going to be eating 25 years from now, focus on what we're doing right now. And that will allow you to make bigger changes. Um, some people will say, oh, just do one little uh, new change every day. That's, you're not going to feel enough of an effect to get an, a, re a reward and you're going to discard it. Make a big change. Take a week, figure out what a plant-based diet would look like for you, and then take three weeks and do it. So focus on the short term. Don't give up your skepticism. You know, you don't have to believe in penicillin. You just have to take it. Yeah. Um, and so you don't have to believe in a vegan diet. Just try it. And then as time goes on, as the three weeks go by, and you'll, you'll discover, good heavens, I'm, my scale on my bathroom floor is smiling at me for a change. And um, I, I feel better. If you have diabetes, your blood sugar is coming down. Your digestion gets better. All these things happen. And if we focus on the short term and do as well as we can, the long term will take care of itself. Now, I feel like we could talk about this for, for a long time. This is a topic that really interests me. You know, we could get into, you know, the antioxidants and foods and all that kind of stuff. But we know you have a busy schedule. So I think this might be a nice time to round off the, the show by thanking you for taking the time to join us today. And ask, uh, where can people find you if they want more information? Well, thank you for asking. Um, our website here is pcrm.org. That stands for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Uh, on Amazon and everywhere else, you'll see my newest book, which is called Your Body in Balance. And there we talk about diabetes and we talk about hot flashes and, and, and all of these systems in the body that need to get back into balance. And uh, as we said earlier, I hope people will not just learn this themselves and put it to work, but I hope they'll make a little noise and share it with other people who need that message. Yeah, and um, we'll put links to your, your latest works and, and your website in the show notes as well, so people can easily access all the information they want. Uh, but once again, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you all enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please remember to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We will see you all next time. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.